Today I want to talk to you on who or what do you love? Who or what do you love? First Peter chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse number 22. 22. And as is always the case, if you didn't carry a Bible in here with you today, there's one in front of you there in the seat somewhere. I always encourage folks to read along. I could be saying anything up here. I could be, yeah, just preaching all kinds of nonsense. That's why you have to have the Bible in front of you, open, watching, following along, keeping me honest. And if you catch me in something, then you can carry me out and throw me out in the street. That would be fine because we want the truth to be preached. So, All right, verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray for your wisdom and guidance now as we look to it. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, that the Holy Spirit would speak to all of our hearts, starting with me, and that, uh, Father, we would all respond to this passage as we ought to to this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, thus far in our study in First Peter, we've discovered several key words that we said uh, kind of repeat throughout, or at least key thoughts that repeat throughout uh, the book of First Peter. They kind of describe his motivation. One of those key words is the word suffering. And we've mentioned the fact that that word appears throughout here, or at least that concept does. And, and uh, apparently, uh, the folks to whom Peter was writing... Uh, were at least were either at that time facing suffering or were going to soon face uh, an expectation of suffering and persecution, and so that was one key word. And there also that we uh, we mentioned that he wrote to give them hope in the midst of that, and therefore the word hope is another key word, uh, kind of a theme, a key thought to the whole book is is that we have uh, hope uh, even in the midst of trials and difficulties. Well, I want to suggest a third key word today, or maybe a key thought. And we actually need to look to 2 Peter, chapter 3, and verse number 1. So flip over a couple pages to 2 Peter, chapter 3, and we find a very interesting verse there. 2 Peter, chapter 3, and verse number 1. Peter wrote, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And so he tells us right there what is kind of one of his key thoughts in writing both of these epistles, First Peter and Second Peter. He wanted to remind the believers of some things, some things that would help them through any suffering or trials or difficulties they might have to endure. We've already seen him reminding uh, them of some things. In the first part of chapter 1, we saw him reminding them of who they were in Christ and what they have in Christ, and we talked about that at length. And then in the second part of chapter 1, we saw him uh, talking, therefore, about and reminding them, therefore, about uh, the importance of holy living and right living and thoughtfulness and obedience and reverence and awe and all those things we talked about in verses 13 through 21. Well, now in the last couple of verses of chapter 1, in the first few verses of chapter 2, 
he reminded them of something else. A couple of things, actually. A couple of things that they ought to love. Now, I know that word's not in there, but I think that's what he's talking about here. They ought to love certain things. Well, it is. It's in there in one case. They ought to love one another. That's plainly stated. And I think he's also saying they ought to love the Word of God. So those two thoughts this morning. We ought to love one another. We ought to love the Word of God. Two thousand years later, after Peter wrote this, we ought to be asking ourselves whether we love those things too. So let's think about them, first of all. Do we love one another? That's the first question I want to ask this morning. Do we love one another? Look at the first verse we read, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, that first phrase, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, it's, it, it's kind of setting the, the, the theme for this entire section that we've read here today down through chapter 2 and verse number 3. He was saying here, I think, in this section that since you have purified your souls, you need to continuously work on purifying your life. I think that's kind of what he's saying here. And that effort is going to be seen, he said here, in the certain behaviors and uh, interactions that we have with one another as well as in how we respond to the Word of God. Since you have purified your souls, was stated in another way in verse number 23 when he said, having been born again. I think both of those phrases, he's simply pointing out the fact he said, since you guys are believers, since you are saved, here's some things that I want to remind you of. And one of those things, he said, is that we ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. That's certainly not unique to Peter, is it? Good night. That's all through the Bible. It's all through the New Testament. Paul wrote about it. Romans chapter 12, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. We ought to love one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul wrote, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. John wrote about it. He said this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave his commandment. Again, John said, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The writer of the Hebrews wrote, Let brotherly love continue. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another. This is not the only mention of it by Peter either. Peter mentions it several times. He reached out and touched it several times. Uh, in the letter, if you flip over to chapter 2 and verse 17, you'll see he said, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the king. In chapter 3 and verse number 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We could go on and on and on with this. This idea that we ought to love one another is all throughout the Bible. And so the question is, do we love one another? Do we love one another? Peter suggested here three different pictures of what our love for one another ought to look like. He said it should be sincere. He said it should be fervent. And he said it should be out of a pure heart. Sincere means that our love is without hypocrisy. It's genuine. It doesn't flow from wrong motives. It doesn't flow from a desire to get something out of the relationship, or from another. It's a love that expects nothing in return, and it's based solely on the good of the one loved. 
Do we so love one another? Sincere. To love fervently is to love continuously, intently, intensely, eagerly. Love that's described by that word is not love that, that, that really is, is, is a matter of emotion, as we oftentimes think of the word. No, but it's a matter of the will. It's something we work at. It's something we strive toward. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote that, quote, Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will, close quote. That's why we find it commanded in the pages of Scripture. It's, it seems strange, doesn't it, that God would command us to love. We think of love as a fuzzy feeling. We think of it as something that we either feel or we don't. But God commands us to love. If it was only a feeling, that would be a very unrealistic command from our Lord. But when we understand that the love we are to exhibit toward one another is an act of, it's a choice. It's an act of our will. Well, then it makes sense. Husbands, you might remember that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 25, Paul commanded this same thing to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. You mean I can't fall out of love with my wife? No. Husbands, love your wives. It's a matter of the will. And so, do we love one another so? Sincerely? Fervently? It might seem impossible to love one another that way, I suppose, if we don't consider some of the other truths that he sprinkled in here. He said in verse 22 that we're to love from a pure heart. He said in verse number 23 that we're able to so love because we've been born again. And again from verse 22, because the ministry of the Spirit is at work in us. In other words, it's not something we can do on our own. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need to be believers in order for this to even be possible. C.S. Lewis had something to say about this, too. He said, we really don't know much about loving until we're in touch with love himself. That's pretty good. This kind of loving, this agape love that's described here, can only come from a heart that's been changed by having met the Master. It's the only way it's even possible. Only from a love, a heart that has experienced the love of Jesus. This kind of loving can only come with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, which we received when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior and were born again. The Holy Spirit helps us as we pursue this love for one another. If you remember in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 22, we have the fruit of the Spirit listed. And what is the very first one? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. In years gone by, we would close our church services sometimes with the hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Remember that old hymn? Good reminder how we ought to love one another. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Brothers and sisters, I have to ask, do we love one another like that? Do we love the family of God like that? Do you love the family of God like that? Because, see, Peter plainly taught here that a changed relationship with God should be evidenced by a changed relationship with God's people. And so we need to pray this morning. May God help us, help us to love one another so. After all, remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In John chapter 13 and verse 35. That old chorus, we will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand and together we'll spread the news that God is in our land and they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. They'll know we're Christians by our love. So that's the first question. Do we love one another? 
Peter here made it very, very plain that that's one of the things that we ought to see in, in our lives. Something he wanted to remind them of. And then he moved on to something else. The importance of not, not just loving one another, but the importance of loving the Word of God. The Word of God. In the next verses, verses 23 through chapter 2 and verse number 3, there are several truths about God's Word. He taught all kinds of things there. He taught therein that we were born again through the Word of God. He taught that God's Word is forever. That the gospel we received was indeed the Word of God. That it is a natural part of the faith that we all have to desire the Word of God. And it is the Word of God that enables you to and makes you to grow in that faith. All those things he taught. And so let's look at those briefly in order. Notice verse 23. He says, you were born again through the Word of God. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. You were born again through the Word of God. Now, I think we need to be careful with that. The Bible did not save us. God saved us. We were saved when we believed the truth revealed in the Bible and called upon the Savior to save us. We were saved when the Holy Spirit drew us to God and regenerated us. That's what Titus has to say. He said, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the life is in God. The life is in the Holy Spirit of God. We see that in verse number 22. But it was communicated to us and is communicated to us through the Word, the truth, as it's described in verse 22. D.L. Moody said the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. God's Word pointed us to Christ. The Holy Spirit drew us to Him. We believed, and we were saved. Peter reminded his readers of this, that God used the Bible, the Word of God, to save you. You were born again through the Word of God. Verse 23. Do you love it? Do you love the Word of God? He goes on in verses 24 through 25, and he says, The Word of God is forever because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Of all the things that we possess on this earth, only the word of God is forever. Everything else about this earthly life is transient and perishing and impermanent and decaying and soon to disappear forever. Peter quoted here from Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 6 through 8 in making that point. All flesh is as grass. It's just a great reminder to us of the frailty of this life, of its temporary nature. Flesh there is a word that's used to describe mankind. All mankind is as grass. All the glory of man withers. That's an amazing word, isn't it? Withers. It's one of those, what do you call that? Onomatopoeia words? That, uh, you know, it, it sounds like it is. It, it's just, yeah. It withers and it falls away. Think of all the things that uh, man holds dear and labors for and strives to earn and obtain and hold on to. He says here it's all like flowers that fall and 
fade and fall away. Any of us who have bought roses for a loved one know exactly what that's like. We go and we buy these beautiful things and we set them on the table and two days later they're just wilted and gone. Anybody who has a flower garden understands that flowers are beautiful, they're desirable, they're wonderful. They're also temporary. They're also dying. Such, wrote Peter, is the truth about all the glory of man. This world is replete with abandoned buildings and decaying monuments which once pointed to the glory of man. Things once astonishing in their magnificence today are nothing but piles of rubble and ruin. Think of the pyramids of Egypt. Think of the Colosseum in Rome. Think of the cities of the Mayans. Think of the Titanic rusting away at the bottom of the Atlantic. And if you want something closer to home, think about your own car sitting in your driveway. All these things wither and fade away. Everything about this life is vanishing. But the Word of God is not. The Word of God is forever. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. Here's how one commentator described this transient nature of these things and the foreverness of the Word of God. He said, when we cast our thoughts back to the time when St. Peter wrote, we see the converts who had accepted the Word of God a mere handful of people amid the throngs of heathendom. The religion which they professed was the scorn of all about them. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, and its preachers in the main were a few poor, untrained, uninfluential men of no rank or conspicuous ability. On the other hand, worshiping crowds proclaimed the greatness of Diana of the Ephesians. And the power of the Roman Empire was at its height, or at least seemed so, with the whole of the civilized world owning its sway. And now, that world's wonder, the temple of Ephesus, is a pile of ruins. And over the Roman power, such changes have passed that it has utterly faded out of existence. But the doctrines of the Galilean... Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the incarnate Word of God, are daily extending their influence, proving their vitality to be divine. The Word of God, the Word of the Lord, is forever. It's forever. It's called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6, 6, 16. It's it's said to be quick, alive, and powerful in Hebrews 4.12. It was by this Word that Jesus foiled the tempter in Matthew chapter 4. Three times He fended off His attacks with it is written, it is written, it is written. It is the word that makes strong those in whom it abides, according to 1 John 2.14. Paul called it the power of God unto salvation in Romans 1.16. And in Ephesians 1.13, it is the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. The word of the Lord is forever. It's forever. Do you love it? Do you love it, Christian? We need to love it. Verse 25, he said, the gospel you received is the word of God. This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. When you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you heard the very word of God. Now, this might seem a a minor point, but I think it's very interesting that we pause here just for a second and notice what Peter did right here. Peter here equated the gospel with the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He, he, He equated them when he quoted verses 24 through 25. He connected the New Testament and the Old here. Do you see that? And he called them both the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Some, some today say we don't need the Old Testament. We can think of some very well-known uh, preachers who have taken that position in recent days. 
I was recently asked to fill out a survey for somebody in a Lake Christian school about uh, that very question. One of the students was supposed to interview a pastor, and so I got this questionnaire. And it was all about the Old Testament and whether or not the Old Testament is relevant to us today. Peter would say yes. He called both of those things the word of the Lord. The gospel you received is the word of God. And then he goes on and he says, It is a natural part of your faith to desire the word of God, to love the word of God. Chapter 2 and verse number 2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Peter wanted his readers to be as eager for the nourishment of the word as babies are for milk. Babies desire milk. Nobody has to force feed milk to babies. They crave it. They love it. They need it. They instinctively seek it and feed on it. Just this past week, Kathy's eldest daughter, Courtney, came to the house, her and her family, uh, to celebrate her birthday. And Kathy made her one of her favorite dinners, and we had a nice time sitting around the table. Courtney and her husband, Tanner, have three kids. One of them, Walker, is still on the bottle. He's just a baby, sitting there in a high chair. Throughout the meal, I, I, I commented, does that baby ever cry? That baby never cry. I've never heard that baby cry. And I hadn't. To my, to my uh, experience, that was the quietest, most content baby I'd ever seen in my life. He would just sit there and smile. Nothing. In the middle of our meal, this blood-curdling scream came out of that little tiny mouth. I thought, wow, okay, that answers my question. Tanner did not even flinch. He just reached over to the bag and grabbed a bottle of milk and in that baby's mouth, silence. Absolute rapture as that baby took that. And then somewhere along the line, I don't know, something, something uh, caught Tanner's attention and he turned a little bit and I think he accidentally just pulled the Bible or pulled the bottle a little bit out of that baby's mouth. Again, this blood-curdling scream. And in went the thing again and again. There was rapture and silence as he drank the milk. See, that's how newborn babes desire milk. And that's what Peter says is how all believers should desire the milk of the Word of God. We need to crave it. We need to want it. We need to want it more than anything else. My mind goes in a couple of different directions when I think about that. When I think about that word desire. On the one hand, the desire for milk is not something that needs cultivated in a newborn. It's something that's naturally part of that newborn's character and their reality. If we consider it in that light, a Christian with no desire for the Bible, well, that's kind of a problem, isn't it? And it makes, it makes me think that maybe that Christian ought to examine themselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse number 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless... Indeed, you are disqualified. So, you know, if, if you're sitting here today and you say, I have no interest in the Bible, could care less. You might want to examine your faith because it's described here as something that should be a natural desire. But on the other hand, Peter does mention it here in the form of a command and therefore something that we have to cultivate. So I see both sides of that. We need to desire it as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks. So pants my soul for you, O God. We need to desire it as Jesus, uh, as those Jesus blessed in his Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger for it, thirst for it, desire it, because... And he goes on in verse number 2, and he said, That word is what makes you grow. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. One man said the healthy condition of the life of the soul is evidenced by these two signs. Longing for proper food and growth. Longing for proper food and growth by partaking thereof. For there is no standing still in spiritual life any more than in the natural life. Where there is no growth, decay has already set in. John Cornett, whom some of you met, he preached here one time. He was my pastor in New Jersey that I worked with for a while. Uh, one time he said, uh, the word, the Bible is the only change agent that we have. And indeed it is. It's the word that brings growth. Apart from a regular intake of the Bible, there is no growth. There's no change in your life, Christian. James had a similar thought when he said in James chapter 1, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's tragic when a baby does not grow properly, isn't it? It's always a sad thing. It's equally tragic when a Christian does not grow and a Christian does not develop in their faith. It's not natural. It's not desirable. The writer of the Hebrews said, By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The Bible is our food. It's our milk. It's the nourishment God provided that we might grow in our faith. Do you love it? Do you love God's Word? Do you love the the Bible? Do you crave it as a baby craves milk? Hmm. Do you see in it your only source of nourishment and growth as a follower of Jesus Christ? Martin Luther wrote, All the cunning of the devil is exercised in trying to tear us away from the Word. Why? Why would he care about that? Because he knows better than any of us the power of the Bible in growing us up as Christians. A pastor friend of mine said, sitting in a chair for 20 minutes every day with an open Bible and an open heart will cure 95% of your spiritual problems. Hmm, That's pretty good. But why is it so? It's because the Bible is the change agent. The Bible is the food that feeds us. It's the it's the nourishment for us, for our spiritual life. It's the cure for whatever uh, is going wrong in our lives. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, It is a good and necessary thing to set aside time for God in each day. The busier the day, the more indispensable is this quiet period for prayer, Bible reading, and silent listening. Stephen Lawson said, The better you know the Word of God, the better you know the will of God. Peter taught that we were born again through the Word of God. That God's word is forever, that the gospel we received was indeed the word of God, that it is a natural part of the faith to desire the word of God, and that it is the word of God that enables you to and makes you to grow as a believer. James Montgomery Boyce said, if you are not feeding on the Bible all the time, the world is going to entertain you and you'll end up not thinking at all. Charles Spurgeon said that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. And John Piper said, when all your favorite preachers are gone and their books are forgotten, you'll still have your Bible. 
master it. And so I ask, do you love it, Christian? Do you love it? Do you desire it? Do you seek it? Do you feed on it regularly? In chapter 2 and verse number 1, you notice I skipped that verse. I, I, I didn't mean to skip it completely, but really not going to talk about it much today. But he did there in chapter 2 and verse number 1 list some things that might hinder us in these efforts. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking are all things that would hinder our loving one another. And I think they also would hinder our loving God's word. He said that we need to lay those aside. Put them off, as Pastor Phil mentioned on Wednesday night. And then having turned away from such sinful tendencies, we need to simply love one another and love God's word. So I want to suggest just a couple of practical things from this passage that maybe would help us if we feel like we need to improve in either of those areas. First of all, if you struggle to love other believers as you ought, and let's face it, we do, sometimes. Some are more lovable than others. If you struggle to love other believers as you ought, well, here's, here's what I would suggest. Spend some time with them. Don't avoid them. Rather, purposefully be with them. Come to church. Come to church rather than staying away. Attend that Bible study rather than avoiding it. Gather with the brothers and sisters when in your flesh you'd rather avoid them completely. If you're only a Sunday morning attender, I encourage you to, to broaden your scope. Try out a Sunday school class. Attend prayer meetings on Wednesday. Hear the hearts of other believers as they pour out their own praises to the Lord or requests to the Lord. Nothing helps me more than Wednesday night listening to other believers pray. Participate in some of the activities. Play golf with us. Oh, by the way, playing golf today. I forgot to announce that. Play golf with us. Eat with us. Pack shoeboxes with us. Practice hospitality one with another and accept hospitality when someone offers to practice it with you. I find that those times when I become most withdrawn and most want to stay away are times when Satan is fighting me. When I push through that and do what he is so vehemently discouraging me from doing, I am blessed. And I find myself enjoying the time with God's people. If we are too, insincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, well, we must spend time with each other. That's key. So that's one practical thought. What about, what about the Bible thing? If you struggle to love the Bible as you ought, well, I think there's a practical thing there that's very similar. I think the solution is pretty much the same. Spend time in it. Spend time in it. It doesn't really matter how much time you spend in the Bible. Just, just, just spend some time in it. It doesn't matter how much you read. Just read something. Any intake of God's Word is going to help you grow. The more you take in, the more you're going to grow. So take it in. Read it. I mean, that's at least the simplistic answer. Spend time in it. If your thought this morning is, well, I don't have time for that. Well, you're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. We all have the exact same amount of time. Nobody has extra time. Nobody has less time. My friend Rob Weigel has a good suggestion. He said, what if you read one Bible verse for every social media post you read? How fast would you read through the Bible? Maybe we're not nearly as busy as we pretend to be. We're just distracted with lesser things. Indeed, lesser things.
Elizabeth Elliot's words always convict me. She said, if we really have too much to do, there are some items on the agenda which God did not put there. Let us submit the list to him and ask him to indicate which items we must delete. There is always time to do the will of God. If we're too busy to do that, we're too busy. That's a good quote. It's convicting. If you go to, well, I understand the importance of loving God's Word, but I'd really love some help in reading and learning the Bible. Well, then, I'd love to tell you about our Pathway to Discipleship, which is a program that we have just for that, specifically designed to help anybody who wants to dig deeper into, into a, a knowledge of the Word of God. Step onto that pathway with us. Follow it to the end, and I guarantee you'll find yourself more in love with the Word of God. Well, that's just a couple practical thoughts. So who and what do you love, Christian? That, to me, is the question that Peter is posing in here. We ought to love one another. We ought to love the Word of God.